This is part two of a two-part episode with Dr. Paul Tennant about summer aesthetic experiences. Enjoy. Welcome to UX Soup, our short-form podcast where you can join me, Lisa Cooper, and my colleague, Chris Schreiner, as we go beyond the buzzwords to talk about the latest user research, technology innovation, and all things impacting user experience and human-centered design of personal device and services, whether it be at home or on the go. As always, UX Soup is sponsored by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing our clients all over the world with insights, analysis, and expertise. Today, I'll be sitting down with Dr. Paul Tennant, Assistant Professor in the Mixed Reality Lab at Nottingham University, England. So tell me about fearsome experiences. I'm interested to hear more. So our, our lab has a history of working with uncomfortable experiences. Uh, we're quite well known for doing the, the less fluffy side of, of HCI. Uh, we've worked on Soma Design work. Uh, with our colleagues at KTH in Sweden, who have been associated with doing sort of nice, friendly, comfortable experiences, being able to push back with some horrifying ones has been quite interesting. Um, <laughs> for us, that's, that's included at one point designing a, a gas mask based breathing interface. So we've built a whole range of breathing based experiences where you had to wear a gas mask to do it. And there's a very practical reason for that. A gas mask creates a very nice seal around your face, and then you can get a very accurate breathing flow from it. But from a kind of creative perspective, that creates this wonderful um, design space in which to work, which is inherently fearsome because gas masks are inherently fearsome objects. So we did a lot of work around that. What's done recently, been thinking a lot about uncomfortable experiences from a kind of content perspective. So I've been doing a lot of work recently with our history department, um, looking specifically at the Holocaust yeah. um, and what we could do with helping people understand what's behind some of the photographs, which are the photographs that we all associate with the Holocaust. And what's really upsetting when you think about it really is that most of these photographs are propaganda photographs, either taken by the Nazis or taken by our own allied forces. And they were taken for very specific propaganda reasons. We started picking up this, this thread of, okay, well, let's start with an uncomfortable topic, but a very important topic, especially now, and consider how we can use mixed reality to really engage people with that topic, particularly through photographs. We've been working with Professor Maiken Umbach uh, in Nottingham University, and uh, she is a professor of historical photography uh, with a particular focus on propaganda photography. We started talking about ways in which we could use mixed reality to, to create something that would really resonate, particularly with younger people. So I started thinking about reconstruction. What would happen if you could walk into a photograph and turn around and see what wasn't being photographed? Yeah. We very deliberately decided not to use actual Holocaust photography because we thought it would be just a, a bit too on the nose. So. We used photographs from the ghetto uprising Poland in 1943. We took one particular photograph and I worked with an architectural CGI company to recreate as exactly as we could the scene as it was, uh, working from a whole bunch of other contemporary photographs uh, and images of, this, of the location as it is now. They created an incredible visual reconstruction of that space. And then we populated it with the people who were in the photograph, or at least 
representations of the people who were in the photograph. We chose not to use the exact photorealistic recreations because we don't know who the people were and we thought that wouldn't be appropriate. So we created this, this reconstruction um, and then we built a transition. You start in a modern exhibition hall, photograph on the wall, and then you step through that photograph and you find yourself in the scene and you can turn around and you can look at the photographer and you can look further around and you can see the overwhelming military presence that was there at the time and it just doesn't appear in the photographs. And that's been a really exciting work for me to engage with that topic and to feel like I'm doing something quite important with my mixed reality work. Which is not to say I don't love doing things that are massively unimportant and mucking around because <laughs> professional mucking around is absolutely my reason for being in this job. But it is nice every so often to do something with some substance. And that project, that's called uh, I as Witness? It is. Where can you experience that? Is that currently touring or is that? It's obviously paused for COVID like almost everything else. Yeah. But um, once we come out of COVID, yes, it'll be touring around the UK again. I think the Jewish Museum in London and the Lakeside Museum at Nottingham will be the first two venues. You can read about it on my blog if you feel so inclined and hopefully read about it in a journal article coming to you soon. Oh, great. So this brings up the, the question about how realistic you make an experience. Because if it was a traumatic experience, such as the Holocaust, or wearing a gas mask, there's that fine line, isn't there? Because you can inform and educate people about what something felt like, what it was really like. But at the same time, you have to be aware of people's discomfort and not getting too real. So it's an interesting line that, that you walk there. Yeah, and I think that's a fascinating can of worms that we, we really tried to unpack uh, with this and other works. There's a long-running question about fidelity in virtual reality. How good is good enough? And what are you being good enough for? Ultimately, most of the experiences I'm involved in have some kind of narrative element. The attempt to tell a story or the attempt to engage you with a particular piece of content. And I tend not to worry about photorealism. I tend to worry about enough fidelity to get my point across. Mm -hmm. You're limited anyway in VR because the resolution of the headsets is it's good. It's gotten better. It's gotten so much better over the last few years, but it's still not great. It's certainly nowhere near your, the resolution of your eyes. And so you're always going to have that kind of uncanny valley of not being real, at least for the time being. I'm sure there will come a point where indistinguishable photorealistic VR is possible, but we're some way from there at the moment. Yeah. And I think there's a real challenge to design to recognize what's appropriate. I'll just give you another much more trivial seeming example. Did some work on a project called The Corrupt Kitchen. And The Corrupt Kitchen, what we were trying to do was explore um, people's relationship with food hygiene and particular uh, regulatory food hygiene. And that sounds like the driest thing in the world. So I took one look at that and immediately designed a um, kitchen burger making simulator where you had to feed an infinite line of hungry Elvis impersonators. <laughs> um, a soundtrack and a robot helper. Part of the reason I did that was I, we felt that you didn't need to make a perfect simulation. And this is an example of a serious game which is being looked at with a very unserious eye. Right, so it's a, it's a serious game. It has a, it has a serious purpose. It's trying to train people about food hygiene. But it has an entirely unserious way of going about it. You know, it's a stupid burger flipping game. But it's not a perfect simulation because actually it's quite complicated making a burger. It, it sounds like it isn't. But when you start unpacking the, all the steps of it, when you think about the algorithm to make a burger, where you have to get a bun out and 
butter the bun and then you have to grill the bun and that's just the bun right then you have to get the burger and you have to mince the mince for the burger but to do that you've got to get the meat out of the refrigerator you've got to go through all these different steps to get to the point where you've actually got a burger you can give to a hungry elvis uh, or whoever you happen to be serving a burger to um, i'm curious why did you pick elvis <laughs> i don't know i was i was browsing uh 3d models of of people uh, that, that were <laughs> really available and, and I could use uh, and I happened upon this Elvis and I thought hmm Elvis famously ate a lot of burgers right he's <laughs> <laughs> curiously the only human character in the entire project everybody else is a robot and the, the whole thing cohesies quite nicely we, we really simplify the process of making a burger to just its core elements and then we insert a lot of pressure we insert time pressure we insert comments from the robot which produce pressure what we're trying to do was to, to simulate the pressured experience of running a kitchen where you're having to make difficult choices about should I mop the floor, should I put the meat back in the fridge, or should I just try and serve more burgers so I get more money. And we set the reward to be, uh, it's a high score, but the high score is the amount of money you make, not necessarily your regulatory compliance, because that simulates the real world, right? You, you don't necessarily make more money by complying with the regulations. You, you make more money by selling more burgers, but if you don't comply with the regulations, then fundamentally you might get punished but perhaps more importantly you might kill somebody so right <laughs> so let's move on to another topic that you've worked on which is substitutional reality could you explain a little bit to the audience what that means so you might be familiar with virtual reality you might also be familiar with augmented reality so virtual reality we create an entirely virtual world augmented reality uh, we put some digital content into the real world. The substitutional reality is to do with the sense of touch. It's where we overlay a virtual world on an existing physical world. So it's an entirely virtual visual, but you have entirely physical objects. Those visible objects are overlaid. What that means is that you can essentially touch everything you can see, which is quite uncommon in virtual reality, right? Most, most, uh, Haptics in virtual reality are either active haptics where you have uh, vibration from your controllers. I think a lot of people will be familiar with now. Mm -hmm. You can get some incredibly accurate single point active haptics where, uh, for example, surgeon simulators, you might be able to perfectly feel what your scalpel is doing, but only on a single point. Then there's the alternative to that, to that which is passive haptics. And passive haptics are where you use real physical objects as um, props. And again, passive haptics are often you're holding a prop or perhaps you're at a desk and, and uh, there's a physical desk where the real one is. What we did with uh, our work on substitutional reality is to create a blank canvas physical set for a, a recreation of the first ever exhibition of photography, or at least arguably the first ever exhibition of photography from William Henry Fox Talbot's uh, 93 photogenic drawings, as they were called. So this um, was an actual room with physical cases that things would have been displayed in. Yes, it was a, so it was a room and museum and we, we built a box within that room and we built everything from the moldings on the wall uh, wow. to the vitrines where the, the work was displayed. And this, is a, this was a, an artwork with an artist called Matt Collishaw, um, who, if you don't know him, look up his work. It's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I would like to say Thresholds is one of his brilliantest. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it was, a, it, was a, it was a really beautiful experience where you, you walk into this very white, very clinical set 
and you put on this ridiculous backpack PC that looks like something Iron Man would be wearing. Note that this was 2017 and backpack PCs were how you had to do wireless VR at the time. Right. So you put on this ridiculous backpack PC and this ridiculous big VR headset and suddenly you're transported to this, this very beautiful 19th century environment. They created this, this extraordinary recreation of Prince Edward School in Birmingham, which burned down in the 1930s. It was created from a few very early photographs uh, and some etchings. They, they recreated this beautiful space. And as you walk around this space, it has a presence that a lot of virtual spaces don't have because you can bang into stuff. You can engage with the real physical objects around you. When you look at a painting on the wall, you can reach out and touch the frame. You could, I mean, you could reach out and touch the painting. And that I think is really interesting because people interact very naturalistically with a physical environment in a yeah. way that they don't with those uh, non-physical virtual environments. The thing I find most fascinating about this is the way people walk through a space. Right? If you walk through a space where there are lots of obstacles that you might bang into, you would think that would make you less confident than walking through a space where you know has been cleared and there's nothing there. But actually it's the complete reverse. If you put things where people expect there to be things, they interact very naturally with them. They walk around them like it's a perfectly normal room. Whereas if there's a risk that I might accidentally lead on a table and fall over because that table's not there, that makes you uncomfortable. And I think it's very interesting to watch people navigate differently between those two different types of spaces. So substitutional reality seems to have a huge effect on navigation, a huge effect on engagement with spaces and presence in those spaces. And for me, the spaces presence with us. That's interesting. Where do you go to be able to experience this? Is this still touring? Is this available uh, to people? Thresholds is, Thresholds is no longer touring. There is a, a part of it currently for the next few months uh, sitting at Lakeside Exhibition Centre in Nottingham, but it, it has finished its tour. But you can read about it in the Journal of Computing and Cultural Heritage. So what made you go towards virtual reality as opposed to augmented reality for something like that, for an experience like that? So we toyed around with both ideas. We were quite keen on the notion of overlaying physical space with virtual content. And we thought we could do that with with augmented reality almost as effectively, but actually getting the pinpoint accuracy you need in the tracking systems to make that work prove almost impossible. It's one thing to kind of paint something onto a wall. It's quite another to exactly map the position of a, of a table. And I thought that would be a problem for virtual reality as well, but it turns out it's not. So I was mentioning earlier on, I was talking about our senses and one of those senses being our proprioception, our ability to detect where our hands are. Turns out our proprioception isn't actually that great. And so if I reach out and touch a table, then if I can perfectly see my hand and that table, then I will understand that my hand is touching the table and it'll, be, it'll feel correct. If I reach out and touch a table that's a virtual table and I've moved that table by a few centimeters uh, in the virtual view of it, it's still gonna make sense when I touch it. It's still gonna feel like it's in the right place because our, our proprioception isn't high enough resolution to, to detect that error, unless it goes past a certain point. So you can get away with a few centimeters. The problem is though, if I render my hand as well, and I reach out and touch the table, what can happen is I can touch the table, but the virtual table might be a couple of centimeters below where my hand is. So the result is my hand is on the table, but I'm not seeing the visual representation of my hand on the table. There's a visual representation of a gap. So we addressed this with this notion of fuzzy 
interactions so or fuzzy interactables so what we did was we made our hands have fuzzy edges so the hands that we interacted with it wasn't clear where they ended so we, we actually made them into light instead of being your kind of standard 3d object what that meant was that we had about one or two centimeters of wiggle room in terms of the the accuracy of the tracking and that turned out to be really important as the tracking would drift a little bit as time went on but these kind of fuzzy hands allowed us to to make that interaction work beautifully uh, and it was a great finding for us this this notion of of creating fuzzy edges to support those kind of haptic interactions that that's smart that's a great way to adapt in that scenario that's a great educational tool because then you can actually interact with things that you ordinarily would not be able to touch. You'd be able to interact with really frail documents that aren't available to people or that perhaps don't exist anymore. Yeah, people can actually see of, it, feel it. The real joy of thresholds was that those original photogenic drawings are so light sensitive, they can't be put on display in real yeah. life. Most of them are in hands of private collectors that are, there are some distributed across the world, but, but generally they're, they're having to be kept in sealed boxes and they, they just can't come out to play. In fact, one of the most incredible experiences for me is when we actually opened the Thresholds exhibition, somebody who had one of the original photographs that we'd recreated brought it to show us. And wow. so I was able to look at the original of this image. That was so exciting. So yeah, we're able to use VR to, to do these things that we couldn't otherwise do, right? And that's anything from jumping out of a plane when you're scared of heights to flying and having superpowers to to seeing these real objects that that just aren't able to be seen anymore but the other thing it allows us to do is to break the rules so not just the kind of the, the fun and easy rules to break like the laws of physics when you do it again breaking the laws of physics dead easy in virtual reality really hard in real life <laughs> but breaking the rules the kind of social rules of museums for example right so in thresholds we let people pick up the photographs you don't get to do that in a museum normally. You pick up and manipulate and zoom in, and so we're breaking laws of physics as well, letting you zoom them and shrink them, but just letting you interact with things in ways that you wouldn't normally be allowed to. Yeah, there's so much potential with it. I can see anything from helping people with dementia relive old memories and share stories to people in wheelchairs potentially experiencing what it would feel like to do things that currently they're not able to do. Absolutely. Where do you see this technology going in the future? What, what do you hope will, will come next and what are you hoping to work on next? So for me, I'm, I continue to be excited by kind of multi-sensory virtual reality experiences. So I, I don't really get excited at anything that is just dealing with vision and audio and nothing else. And I'm starting to find touch is less exciting. So the, the more we can push those other senses, the more the more kind of interested I am in the projects. Um, I'm very keen on senses of transition, change, and how virtual reality can render change. I mean, your example of you know somebody in a wheelchair being able to experience what it's like to do some physical activities is a really exciting one for me. I'm, I'm very interested in I'm interested in the accessibility options that virtual reality and other immersive tech creates, and I'm really interested in generally that experiential work. I'm going to give you an example of a, a little project I'm working on at the moment with a, a, one of my undergrad students, which is a, a breathing horror game. And the idea essentially is it uses breath to control the lights in a game. So as I breathe in, I'm able to see. As long as I'm not breathing in, I'm unable to see. But it's absolutely horrifying because breath is such a fun mechanic to play with because you have some control over it 
but not very much. Um, so just to annoy your listeners, uh, if I talk about your breathing and get you to think about your breathing, you're now doing it manually, right? So at this point, you're going to be breathing manually. It'll take a little while before you stop breathing manually. And you stop kind of thinking about it and let it return to its kind of normal autonomic state. So when you start playing with breath interfaces, you start playing with the fact that we have this, this kind of mixed amount of control. You can hold your breath, but you can only hold it for so long. You can take a huge breath, but it can only be so big. And you can't breathe in and in and in and in again. No. You, have to, you have to breathe out. And we've exploited this mercilessly in a lot of our projects over the years. Um, some people might be familiar with a bucking bronco we made that was breath controlled. And the idea was that you, you breathe in and it moves in one direction and you breathe out and it moves in the other direction. And as time goes on, it moves further for the same amount of breathing. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, that's easy. You just breathe in nice and slowly and calmly and manage to stay on it. And that's easy. I could assure you it isn't. Uh, because the first thing you do when you get on the bucking bronco is hold your breath. So you hold your breath. But then, of course, when you hold your breath, you exhale hard. So you exhale hard and the thing hurls you off immediately. <laughs> However, I have drifted slightly to, from the topic of my horror game. So, yeah, the idea is you, you breathe in in order to keep the lights on, but you're only going to be able to keep the lights on for so long. At some point, you're going to have to breathe out. And the longer you've held your breath, the longer you're going to be breathing out for before you can breathe back in again. So it's, it's kind of toying around with wow. limitations. <laughs> I would not be good at that game. <laughs> So how can people find out more about what you're doing? So you can look on my blog, uh, which is paultenant.wordpress.com, or you can just Google Paul Tennant and you will undoubtedly find me and presumably another people called Paul Tennant. Um, <laughs> you can also look at the Mixed Reality Labs website, uh, which, uh, again, it's a horrible URL, so I'll suggest you just Google the Mixed Reality Lab Nottingham and you'll definitely find us. There's a whole host of interesting things on there. Uh, and you could look at look out for us at uh, at Kai and come and say hello if you happen to be there. Wonderful, thank you so much for chatting today. I really really enjoyed our conversation. I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Oh, thank you. A reminder that UX Soup is presented as always by Strategy Analytics. Check out our latest user focused insights at sa-ux.com. Please also remember to subscribe, like, or review UX Soup on your favorite podcasting platform or by visiting our show page at ux-soup.com. You can also visit the show page to follow myself or Chris on LinkedIn. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>